Hi, I'm Carrie Adams and you're listening to Carrie's Corner. Here we talk to the movers and shakers, the drinkers, the dreamers, the people who make it happen in the liquor industry around the world. So, let's get sipping. Today on Carrie's Corner of Business News, we are inviting Michael Fredron into the studio. He is wine industry spokesperson, critic and wine industry specialist, award-winning journalist. He also owns WineX. He has pioneered wine exhibitions in South Africa, overall asset to the South African booze industry. Michael, thanks for coming in to Business. Great pleasure to be with you. (laughs) So... We are sitting in rather a strange position at the moment in our particular industry, and I know that you are one of the people that everybody looks to, to try and put lobby groups together, try and speak sense to government, etc., etc. First off, give me your take on government's handling of the liquor industry under COVID. Well, it would be hard to be enthusiastic about it. 20 weeks of lockdown in less than a year is not the sort of thing that helps any industry to stay afloat. And when you look at the impact of the prohibition on the sale of alcohol, together with the lockdown of the hospitality sector, what you have is a huge crisis brewing right across the sector. So on the assumption that government understood that that would be the consequence of its action, you have to ask yourself, firstly, whether it was essential to do that in relation to the COVID threat and whether there wasn't perhaps a more sophisticated approach, a more nuanced approach or to a dealing. More, or a more sinister sort of, uh, a more sinister reason. Well, Why on earth would somebody want to close down an industry that contributes? Well, we've got all the figures somewhere, but the biggest employment sector in the agricultural sector, masses towards tourism, masses towards the export sort of markets. Why would they want to close that down? Well, I think there are a few things here. So let's put the positive spin on it first, and that is that in the initial stages, the very first lockdown, March last year, they were looking at unknown in terms of COVID, and their first requirement was to prepare the country for it. We can go into a long debate about whether they used the time profitably, but that very first Level 5 lockdown was pretty complete and for everybody. And the only difference there was that they included the online sale of alcohol which most other countries permitted and that was i think political you can't escape the thought that they felt that if you were going to open liquor sales or permit them then the people who trade liquor extensively and in a not click and collect environment would have been prejudiced and that once again middle classes with credit cards and online facilities would have been able to exploit the situation or take advantage of it at the expense of those who didn't have. Right. You have to take that and at least assume that for that first lockdown, everyone locked down. If you remember, there were pretty few, pretty, I mean, in terms of shops open, there weren't clothing stores, they were only essential, essential. Yes. I still think that that was heavy-handed, but I do understand the purpose behind it. And interestingly, I was having a discussion with somebody in a senior position in Australian government who, when I explained that this was a lockdown complete in terms of all forms of alcohol sales, rolled her eyes and said, you know, in Australia, the alcohol industry was regarded as an essential service (laughs) and given the necessary exemptions to continue operating. But 
we have a country which doesn't manage its relationship with alcohol that well. And I think their feeling was that if people were drinking and partying in lockdown, there would be an environment in which the virus would spread that much more quickly. Agreed. So let me give them that. Yeah. Let's tick the box for level five. From that point onwards, I have to say, I don't think that they were acting in the best interests of the country, let alone the best interests of the liquor industry. The problem, they will tell you, is that because of this fraught relationship between alcohol and the population, if they allowed alcohol sales, then there would be lots of misbehavior. Lots of misbehavior would mean, on the one hand, much too much socializing and therefore facilitating the spread of the virus. The other point was simply that because people drink and then get violent, the space that they were clearing for the management of COVID patients would be taken up by victims of violence. Now, that's a completely different question. The management of alcohol is a matter of enforcement. Closing it off at source, as I have often said, is like saying that if there are motor accidents, instead of stop the sale of cars, stop the sale of cars, you know, that doesn't make sense. And there is an interesting consequence of this, and that is when you analyze the reduction in trauma in other societies over lockdown and the reduction in trauma in South Africa over lockdown with the prohibition on liquor sales, we did no better. In other words, one of the conclusions that you have to draw is that it is the restriction on movement that produces the most important result. Therefore, they could, in fact, have opened alcohol sales but enforced curfews and restrictions on movement. Quite right. They didn't do that. So at this point, you have to say, are they as incompetent as most people seem to think they are, or is there an ulterior motive, a much more sinister purpose? And here we do have to move to one of the real unifiers in the much fragmented ANC, and that is that generally there is a very strong prohibitionist lobby which runs right through the society and right through their voting support, and it has a deep and ingrained history, and there you do have to pay attention. The apartheid government used the administration boards as a means of raising revenue with which to control the townships. So it was a real double whammy. Yeah. And the generation that grew up with parents who had tough lives and came home and then spent it all on drink, that is the generation that is now... That we're dealing with, yeah. Exactly. Mm. So that is a very deeply ingrained issue, and it can't be dismissed. But just because people have traumatic relationships or things doesn't entitle them to abuse power in order to pursue an agenda. And when it comes to alcohol, remember that the right to trade alcohol is protected by the Constitution, and the speed with which the government is keen to collect, on the one hand, sin taxes and licensing revenues, (laughs) suggests that it has an ambivalent attitude itself when Mm. it comes to transactions involving liquor. You know, the other problem is is that we've seen it across the world over many, many years, if you have a look at prohibition all over the place, in a situation such as the one we find ourselves in at the moment, with a government that operates under darkness, under cloak and dagger, everything is secretive. Nobody is allowed to know. We have had our basic freedom of right to know taken away from us. It immediately enforces or it encourages conjecture and conspiracy theory, which is dangerous. Do we have any factual evidence 
that the government is making a move towards legislating prohibition in South Africa in some form or fashion. We do know that their advisors are certainly trying to lead or encourage a much more enhanced control legislation. What that would lead to, I have no idea. I really would like to believe that they're not that stupid. They would go for total prohibition. The American example is the obvious one. But even in the lockdowns, the extent of the illicit market was huge. So we know now that, and we also, we have to assume that however much there is malice directed to the DA-controlled Western Cape, they can't seriously imagine that it would be in the national interest to put 250,000 people involved in the wine industry alone out of work. And if you add to that the beer industry, the shabine industry, the retail and the distribution side of all forms of alcohol, the Direct employment is somewhere between three quarters of a million people and a million people. And if you add five dependents per employee, Mm. what you're looking at is just a massive increase in the social impact, not just of COVID, but of the failing economy. So no, I don't think, I think that's really a way too paranoid interpretation. But what we do know is that they are very keen to make things tougher and tougher. At this point, let me say that if they simply applied the existing legislation, there would be no need to amend anything. It is an offence to supply liquor to a minor. What sort of an offence? Well, you can be fined half a million rand. Is that so? Yeah. You can have a jail sentence. In terms of the existing Liquor Act. 2003 Liquor Act. Have you ever heard of anyone being you know, find anything like that? Have you ever heard of anybody being imprisoned? I've never heard of anybody being turned away from a bar under age even. Well, I think... Which must, I mean, in the olden days when we were growing up, it simply was just not allowed. You did not even gain entry into a bar. I mean, Parkhurst in Johannesburg, which is absolutely pumping on a Saturday night and which the police, in fact, did visit last Saturday, but that was really to control the number of people in spaces. So their licensees are behaving very badly. But they weren't actually closing off the area, checking the age of the people there, and shutting down the licensees who are selling liquor to people under 18. Absolutely. We know this is an extensive problem in South Africa. The police know it's an extensive problem. The problem we know from the outset is a policing problem, which is why Bekitseli is busy telling everybody that he wants to see the end of all liquor, that liquor is bad, it's because actually he can't police. It's too hard to police. But also, if you really want to take a paranoid and conspiracy view, the police who don't live entirely on their salaries, that they are in a position to engage in a whole lot of rent-seeking and haven't been able to, should we say, harvest in the manner normally because of... On the roads, (laughs) because everybody's at home. And because of the lockdown now need an alternative. So I would take a paranoid view and say that any change in the legislation that becomes more prohibitionist is merely designed to enhance the informal opportunities for the police, starting with the view that actually we should um, have a zero tolerance on alcohol in the bloodstream for drivers. Now our blood alcohol, legal blood alcohol level is lower than in Europe, but it is real. In other words, if all you do is stop people who have blood alcohol of above 0.5. You're doing your job. They are perfectly safe drivers up to 0.5. So putting a zero there, making it absolutely no alcohol, is simply an opportunity for the police to farm 
any situation where somebody's in a roadblock and has had one glass of wine eight hours earlier. It's an insanity, but it's an insanity which suggests that there is a malign intention. Michael, there's a whole lot of stats that are being bandied at the moment about alcohol-related trauma in hospitals, etc., etc. What's the reality of these stats? Do we really have the truth somewhere? Well, certainly there is a lot of alcohol-related trauma. You'll talk to trauma doctors and they will tell you that um, in certain areas, particularly hospitals fill over the weekends as a result of alcohol-related trauma. And there's no quick fix to that problem because it should have been dealt with years ago in terms of proper education around the use of alcohol. You're not going to deal with it now and certainly not with a, a sledgehammer. So, yes, there is a real issue. The violence is absolutely there. It is, in fact, hotspot-related, and many of those hotspots have been researched. So the first thing you would expect from an intelligent state is to make sure that the areas in which this violence occurs are properly policed, that enforcement is at a much more rigorous level than in areas where that problem doesn't occur. Secondly, you'd want to see a lot more um, roadblocks relating to drunk driving. And here, this is what Australia, this is what the UK, this is what Europe has managed to achieve. It takes time because you do have to change the attitude of people to the dangers of getting behind a wheel when you've had too much to drink. And in this country, it is pretty much a known fact that the police who are managing those roadblocks are easily persuaded to take some money and let you go. So nobody sees it as a downside risk. They see it as an expense, yes, a form of taxation. Part of your monthly budget. That, that is very, very bad because it's exactly those people who, when they have an accident and they do kill somebody, you can't buy that one back. And the job of the police is not to collect bribes. The job of the police is to actually enforce the law, not just take people's licenses away. If you're driving drunk, which is exactly what is the situation mm. in Australia, in Britain, in France, they go to jail. If you go to jail, you'll be surprised how quickly people will alter the way they get about life and the amount of alcohol that they drink before they get behind the wheel. I did see something wheel. the other day. Somebody wrote an article about the pending or the imminent enforcement of this new point system on driver's licenses. There's apparently some anomalies in there that are rendering it illegal. Have you read that? Um, I've seen something around that. But remember, you know, the point system only works if you actually enforce the law. Mm. And if they're not going to enforce the law for drinking and driving, then, you know, the point system isn't going to play any role in that at all. The other thing is that the prohibitionist lobby, um, and I have to say here it's the statisticians who work for the medical research folk and their numbers are much beloved by government. Yes. Um, those figures have been quite seriously skewed, so in a number of different ways. Firstly, they take – I mean, South Africa actually ranks 54th in the world in terms of alcohol, per capita alcohol consumption. That's the WHO figure from 2018. But they say things like, we are amongst the worst in Africa, and we are in, I don't know the exact number there, I've seen a figure of sixth, which I then saw denied. But they use a figure, what they do is they say that research shows that 60% of South Africans don't drink. And so they then take the known total consumption of alcohol, 
They adjusted for the (laughs) believed illicit sector, which is a separate calculation, but is also a thumbs up. Having added those two figures together, instead of dividing it by the universe, they divide it by the much reduced universe, but they don't do the same, for example, in the UK, where there's a large Muslim population, and so their position would also change. In other words, it's not an apples-for-apples statistic. And even within that, we do need to acknowledge that there is binge drinking. We do need to acknowledge that it's not being controlled at the bar and the pub level. And once again, I use the example of Parkhurst. We do need to acknowledge that although the government is very happy to pick up liquor licensing revenues, it's not putting liquor squads on the ground to stop this kind of abuse. So we do have hotspots. We do have portions of the population who drink too much and then engage in any kind of violence, and we do have an absence of enforcement. But driving liquor underground, as we discovered through lockdown, doesn't stop the problem. And this leads to, in fact, a very frightening scenario that we're about to confront. We know that as a result of lockdown and we know that as a result of the lost export trade in Level 5, there's a surplus of around 300 million litres. I was going to touch on that and say, what are we going to do with all the wine that's sitting in tank and barrel in South Africa after we've established that the biggest problem we have in the country is the police? 300 million roughly litres are not going to evaporate into hand sanitizer. They are going to be sold, and they're going to be sold, and in the absence of enforcement, I can tell you exactly what will happen. The wineries need to clear their tanks. They need to get some revenue in because they've actually paid the growers for the fruit. They paid the growers for the fruit that was harvested in 2020. Now, you've got 300 million litres of wine to sell, and it's going to sell to the lowest common denominator at the lowest possible it's price. It's going to leave the farm in buckets for 50 cents a bucket load it's going because to, they're about to harvest now and they have nowhere to put their new harvest. So, yes, you're quite right. It's going to go into pup sucker. Mm. It's going to go into sort of PET bottles, those one and two litre plastic bottles that fruit juice and other products are sold in. And it's simply going to be sold in an environment which is already suffering from the stress of surplus alcohol. And it's not going to be properly pleased in that environment. So there will be a huge increase in drunkenness. And Mm. prohibition, even in that environment, is not going to work because we know that the prohibition of the uh, level 5, 4 and level 3 during the last 10 or 11 months did not stop that kind of transaction from happening. It simply made it more expensive for the vendor to bakshish the police. Another interesting question that I wanted to ask you, where do you think the government is looking or thinking that they're going to make up the revenue that they've lost in customs, excise, VAT, sales, etc., etc.? Surely they must have thought this through. There must be a plan afoot. How much do you believe has been lost to the government as a result of prohibition? I have no figure in mind. We know the industry figure in terms of lost excise for the lockdown period. Some of that must have been made up as soon as people were able to buy and stock up again. There's the loss of revenue from the hospitality sector. There's VAT. There's the VAT on it. There is the loss from the tourism. Huge. Because if you don't have a hospitality sector, and the Western Cape's hospitality sector is enormously dependent on foreign visitors, and the wine farm Net revenue, the figure I've seen is that roughly 30% 
of the bottom line of the wine farms on wine routes is recovered from visitors to the farm mm. in the tasting room at the restaurant using the facilities that are all part of the social environment of the wine trade. So the losses run into many billions, billions. of rand, mm. and we know that there's a vast under-recovery at the moment in terms of what the fiscus needs. The real question that you asked is where do I think government thinks it's going to recover it? I wish I knew, and I'm sure that's how they feel. They are facing this ever-increasing debt they know that they've lost this revenue, but they've made a political, not economic decision exactly. that this is what they need to do. It's already been said that the more you tax the taxpayers, of whom there are very few relative to the total country, the more first the evasion and not just avoidance, and the more ultimately will be lost to immigration. So the tax take may finally start reducing if the tax rate is raised. Uh, I know there's a debate around that, but all I'm saying is it's not certain that you can recover the lost revenue simply by raising taxes because the stone can only be squeezed so dry. In addition to that, I think that the fact that the industry has been transferred largely at this stage of the game from the formal to the informal sector, because the formal sector has by and large stood by the laws of the land. I know that Norman Goodfellows did not trade a single bottle of a single thing under any of these lockdown periods. I'm quite sure that Macro didn't pick and pay Woolworths. I'm sure that they didn't. And I think a lot of our competitors, Ultra Liquors, I know that we did not do it. So there was a lot of booze being sold. There was a lot of wine being sold, and we know that there was alcohol out there. And most of it was being traded in the townships, which is where we are told, well, there's a massive percentage of our population live in townships at this stage of the game. So it's just a, it's a, it's not even a, a social sort of divide. It's just a fact of life that there was a huge amount of alcohol changing hands and money changing hands in the townships under lockdown. None of that even smells SARS. None of that money or that alcohol goes anywhere near the fiscus. Is that the way forward for the alcohol industry, do you think? Well, firstly, I think you're right. The formal sector, by and large, is not in a position to engage in the illicit trade for the very obvious reason that there's a license to be lost and you're not going to see breweries, Distel, DGB, you're yes. not going to see those companies taking any kind of risk. They're multi-million rand enterprises. They can't be in that position. I mean, it's just an irresponsible level of trade. Mm. I can't be that sure that the smaller wine farms weren't trading if they could. If they knew somebody who drove up and filled a boot, that would have happened. But the other part of the deal, which nobody is realizing, is that you don't need to have a liquor industry to produce liquor. No. And this, SARS has been aware of, because this is discussions I've already had with them, around the growing presence of what is loosely called ale. And just so that listeners understand what that means, it's water, yeast, and sugar fermented to ferment. Mm. And it does it very quickly, and it can produce alcohol levels of 5 to 10%, more probably if you can get the right yeasts. And it costs a couple of rand a litre to produce. That's and terrifying. You, and you can make it quite tasty if you add flavour into it. And we mustn't forget that there's a long memory in this country. Black prohibition, which was only reversed in the 1960s following the Milan Commission report, yes. didn't mean that there wasn't alcohol in the townships before the administration boards. 
doesn't mean they weren't shabinas. It doesn't mean they weren't runners. It doesn't mean that they weren't people brewing what used to be called skokian and other such products. So illicit alcohol is, you know, is no stranger, is no stranger yeah. to this country. Yeah. And it will come back and it comes back with obviously health related issues, quality related issues. And as you rightly point out, no revenue at all to the mm. fiscus. Your prognosis in wrapping up, how do you see this ending by the end of December this year? Well, firstly, um, I'd be very pleased if everybody in this country was vaccinated by the end of December, but I don't think that's a certainty. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I do hope that as we move out of winter, there will be enough people vaccinated that we'll see a relative return to normality from, say, September onwards. You have to recognise that government has rather enjoyed the application of the Disaster Management Act, so they're going to be loath to give it up. It is or was intended to be much less rigorous as legislation than the emergency regulations, which require much more transparency. So they've used a lesser law, but one that... To wield a bigger stick. To wield Mm. a bigger stick and which is not subject to the same transparency requirements. I can't see them giving that up until really they've run out of excuses to do so. On the other hand, by the last quarter of this year, I think they're going to be scrabbling for funds such as SASA funds, without which truly this country will be in a state of huge unrest. So at some point, a deal is going to have to be struck. Where that meeting point will be is very difficult to predict, and it's certainly going to come with raised excise, which is part of the package of of suggestions that they've received from their advisors. It may come, and that's the easiest to implement because it's taxed at source, as opposed to other regulations around trading hours, costs of licenses, Mm. raising the drinking age to 21, which I know is on the agenda, is another insanity because we know that kids of 14 and 15 are already getting alcohol, so it will simply mean that you will criminalize them for longer and you will produce a disrespect for the law as a result of the law being seen to be an ass. So there will have to be a proper engagement, and that will mean that all parties will have to step down from their apparently intransigent positions and meet. And let's hope that that happens in the third quarter of the year so that we can go into the fourth quarter with a vibrant hospitality industry with an opportunity for foreign tourists to come back into the economy because the one factor we haven't added is that the wine industry is not only an employer and a contributor to GDP in its own right, but that it's aggregated with the wine industry. The people who come to the Cape from Europe and America in those four or five months of summer aren't coming to swim in Camps Bay. You can be very clear the water is not that attractive. They're coming for the South African wineland experience, and that's got to be functioning if we're going to get out of this hole. Well, Michael Fridjohn, as ever, just unbelievably informative and always really, really good to listen to. Thanks so much for joining us on Biz News, Carrie's Corner. My pleasure. Thank you.